to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation as usual as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Hi, and welcome back to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm thrilled you can join us today. We are going to be talking with some people across the pond. But before I introduce you to our guests, I just want to give a shout out to the Mark Arneson Band, who does our opening music called Clarion Call, which you can download on any of your favorite music apps. Also, for anyone who's new, Alzheimer Speaks is about sound information, not just sound bites. We like to have real conversations with real people. And so maybe, just maybe, you can be our next guest. Now, this month is World Alzheimer's Month. And on the 21st, Alzheimer's Disease International is going to be releasing their 2021 report, which is about the journey of getting diagnosed. So watch for that. I also want to give a shout out to Dementia Map, which is our global resource directory that is launched. It's free for anyone to access 24-7, and you don't have to sign in or sign up or register. also want to give a shout out. I just interviewed Ryan Lynn with Care Project, and they are looking for some people for their studies. Uh, there's no cost to be in this. You can get up to $255 for compensation And to be eligible, you have to have cared for someone for four hours a day with dementia within the last three months. And multiple people in the family can apply for this as well. You will be um, given a Fitbit to use during this this study, and then they will give you short little questions throughout the day uh, to answer because they're trying to figure out stress and how that affects you um, as a care partner. So you can email them at careduringcovid at rice.edu. Also on September 15th, which is a Wednesday from 8 to 9 Central Time, I'll be doing a presentation um, which is sponsored by Maple Hill Senior Living and Moments Hospice. We're going to be talking about dementia around the world, perception, stigma, services, and movements. And that is going to be virtual, so you can easily participate in that. And then Arthur's Senior Care is continuing to sponsor Arthur's Memory Cafe, which we do the second and fourth Wednesday of each month at one o'clock central, and that is virtual. I also am working with uh, Brookdale North Oaks, and we do a live in-person caregiver connect support group, and that is the last Wednesday of each month from 10 to 11. Let's see, just have a couple more announcements. One is Compassion and Choices is going to have a signature event. It's their annual event on purpose, power, and promise. And uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with Compassion and Choices, it's about end-of-life 
decisions. And they actually have a tool that you can use for people living with dementia. And, uh, and it's great for anybody, you know, anywhere, we should all have this stuff figured out when we're 18 years old. And I know it's a conversation we don't like to have, but they've made it really simple. So um, check them out and uh, go and sign up for for that event, which is going to be October 6th. And then the Dementia Research Charity Brace is doing an international uh, virtual conference called Together for Dementia, and that'll be online on November 2nd. And last, I I really think this is important. The Brain Donor Project is out there and you can just go to braindonorproject.org for more information, but they do need brains. If we are going to have research, they need both healthy and diseased brains. So please check that out. We're gonna hear from the Foot Bar Walker and we will be right back and I'm gonna introduce you to our guests. Introducing the life-changing Footbar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Footbar Walker revolutionized my care of George. It absolutely benefits the patient and the caregiver both, and that's the beauty of it. It's so easy to use. It folds up just like a dream. I got it in and out of the car without any effort at all. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The Foot Bar Walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the Foot Bar Walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the Foot Bar Walker. Well, I'm so excited to have this conversation today. We are meeting with uh, Peter Berry, who was diagnosed with early onset at the age of 50. And if I remember correctly, Peter, you are now 56 years old and you live in uh, South Fork with your wife, Teresa. And Peter is a great believer in living well with dementia. And he is just this amazing character, I'm going to call you, because you're just doing so much for raising awareness and lifting spirits. He has cycled thousands of miles each year to demonstrate that it's possible to to live well and still engage and and keep up uh, your your hobbies and things. So welcome, Peter. I'm just thrilled to have you back on the show. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. It's great to have the opportunity to, uh, yeah, to talk to talk to you all across the pond, as they say. Yeah, great. Thank you. It's so nice to connect with people around the world because we can all inspire people in different ways. And if we just kind of stick in our own little backyards, we're missing out so much. And so I, uh, I really appreciate all you have done for dementia awareness and living well and lifting spirits. So thank you again for joining us. Sitting next to him is Deb Bunt, and she is a retired family practitioner. And she is a co-author with Peter on their book called Slow Puncture. Deb moved to South Fork from London with her husband, Martin, to spend more of her free time cycling with this guy. So I think that that is just kind of fascinating. 
in and of itself. Um, in Slow Puncture, uh, their book, Peter tells the world what it's really like to live with dementia and a terminal terminal illness. And so again, Deb, thank you so much for joining us and, and being being um, Peter's partner on this journey in cycling and raising awareness. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm going to go ahead and and um, start. I, I always ask if you've been touched by dementia. And needless to say, Peter, you have been. So if you can give people a little background on, you know, when you got diagnosed, maybe some of the the, uh, the symptoms um, that you sensed or your family sensed that maybe there was an issue. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I, I was uh, running a, a family business that we had, and I ran that for about 25 years. Uh, quite a successful family business, employing about 14 people at the time, um, running a sawmill, which I think you would term over there as a lumber mill. And um, that was all going great. And then I was starting to uh, have difficulty in, in managing that and um and I suppose really my my memory was was changing. I personally didn't really notice that much. Um, I, I I think the people around me, my wife and and my friends, who were noticing more of uh, my memory loss than I was. I think it's that that old thing where you know we're if we're standing inside dementia looking out, it's not the same as standing outside looking in. And um, those that were on the outside could see a lot more than than I could. So we, um, like many other people, went through this lengthy procedure of um, getting a diagnosis, which my dear wife had to battle hard for, I think it was right in sound, three years. Did Teresa have to do that for? Yeah. And um, the system is better now in this country than it was uh, a few years ago. Um, and then, of course, we, um, we ended up where we are now. Um, it, was, it was a struggle in the first instance, but, uh, you know, I think, I think we, we have learnt to laugh a little at our dementia, um, which wasn't easy in the first place, but uh, we have learnt to, to smile at it, poke fun at it a little bit. And yes, it is serious, but we have learnt to, to not take it too seriously if, if that makes sense and that has given us the ability to do what we do now well I think it's really important for people to get to that space of not taking it too seriously and not letting it overtake your life and not becoming dementia there's so many other aspects to, to people's lives but it's I know it's difficult as a as a care partner for my mom you know, you take that role so seriously and sometimes you turn it into a task instead of a lifestyle. And, and then you lose, you lose those, those important connections and moments because you, you're, you're so worried about doing things right and caring for this person right. And we forget about the whole emotional side of it. And um, I, I see so many people go through that and, um, and I think I think laughter is one of the best things in life, you know, and, and we shouldn't give that up to the. We, came, we, we found very quickly that um, we dementia had become head of the household and we soon learned that it's best to have it as a house guest instead of <laughs> instead of ruling the roost. 
Oh, I like that. I like that. That that makes a lot of a lot of sense there. Um, Deb, how about you? Have you been personally touched in your own family and circle of friends? Um, I have, but I think in a very stereotypical way that my elderly grandmother um, had dementia. I was shielded from it by my mother, uh, but my assumption was that's what happened to old people. So I only only heard little bits from my mum about what was going on, but my grandma did have dementia. But um, I'd never met anybody, certainly not of Peter's age, but probably not since my grandmother. So it was a, a blank canvas for me. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I get that where families kind of, you know, don't want the kids to know when, you know, we've got this under control, not an issue. And we had that with with my family as well. My my mom's mom, I found out after she passed away, my mom said um, that grandma had Alzheimer's, but that wasn't until my mom thought she had it. And I still to this day don't even know where the word Alzheimer's came from because that was so long ago. That would have been like 50 years ago. Nobody talked about dementia or Alzheimer's then. And, you know, we all thought like with my grandma that it was her cancer and the morphine that that um, made some of the changes and stuff in the end. So I think it's so important to have these family discussions on this because kids are greatly impacted. Plus they're a wonderful resource and um, they're very creative in terms of looking at different ways to, to deal with things. So I think they can be a wonderful, wonderful resource for us. Um, Children are, are, are very good actually, because they don't seem to focus on, on anything except for if somebody is good to them, then they're good to that person. They don't seem to worry about color or race or anything. It's just, it's just, is grandma or grandpa happy? Then they're happy around them. And that can, that can ripple out to the whole family. Uh, so I think kids can sometimes deal with this better than we actually realize, I think, because their perception of life and their concept of life is, is so different to ours. Yeah, they, they, you know, they're just looking at who can play with me, you know, <laughs> what can we do that's going to be fun? And what yeah. a great attitude, you know, yeah. to have, because that really should be should be our focus. Um, more than I think what a lot of us adults do, we, we start taking life a little bit too seriously. Um, when you first got diagnosed, Peter, how did you cope with the diagnosis? Um. Not as well as I think we should have done. And I think a lot of that was because we were, well, I suppose it seems funny to say that, but we we were new to it. Mm -hmm. We were new to this idea that, um, you know, that uh, I had this this condition. And um, to begin with, I think we did what many people do is we kept very quiet about it for about a year, I think, Um, mainly because... I think my wife wanted to protect me against the the stigma about this condition um, because people's, I suppose, perception was very different to the reality of, of the condition. And also a little bit that I was a little bit embarrassed, which seems very strange and funny to say that now, um, that, uh, that I'd lost certain abilities um i thought that people might think that i was a bit stupid really (laughs) if if i'm really brutally honest um and looking back on that we should have told 
family and friends because when we actually did, it, it did seem like a great relief, I must admit, because people were starting to think that things weren't right. And I think that they were then making their own minds up as to what the problem is. I, I, I wasn't driving at that time. And I think a lot of people had thought that I lost my license through drink driving um, or, you know, other had he got other problems. And um, that was the thing. We also, well, I say we also, I suppose we as a family went down this, this road of sort of depression, me personally. And I don't think it's uncommon for that to happen. Um, it was quite a, a nasty, yucky, miserable time because there was so much going on. There was the issue of, of trying to access help in some shape, form or way. Uh, we had uh, financial issues at that time because obviously I couldn't earn a living as, as I had. Of course, we had uh, bills to pay, mortgage to pay and, and all of that sort of thing. So it wasn't like being diagnosed at a retirement age where you have retirement and the system is set up for you in, in, in a benefits way. Um, we had this situation where my memory wasn't that good, but yet physically I was as fit as a fiddle as I am now. So I could, I could physically do things, but I couldn't always remember what to do. So there was that, that balancing act of, you know, how do you get the money? I personally was fortunate because I, I did have a, a private pension, which is what we managed to access a little bit early and is what is our main income now. But there are many people out there who are not that fortunate and uh, have to battle to get any sort of income and support. Uh, and, of course, we gradually got to the idea about this, this business of, you know, trying to live with the condition. But it did take, did take a full year to really work it out. We, we were, how can I put this? It's like a horse and cart scenario, really. We were, dementia was in front of the horse and we were trying to push it along. We, we come to realise that you have to stick it in the cart at the back and jig along with it. That's that, that's the sort of thing that we that we that really took a year to get our heads around. Yeah, I think uh, I think what you went through is really normal. The depression, the embarrassment, the not telling people right away. But I, I thought you brought up a really good point of, gosh, we should have told them earlier because they were all worrying and trying to figure out what's going on and coming to some assumptions that may or may not have been correct. And so it does complicate things. And, and I think uh, many times people take a little bit of offense too of well, why wasn't I in the loop, but they don't understand, you know, how devastating a diagnosis like this is, you know, this is like a, uh, an early retirement that's not planned, you know, it's almost more like a pink slip in some way when you weren't ready to, to move on to that stage. Where with Deb, you went through a transition yourself in terms of leaving your job and, and going into retirement, but I would imagine that was more of a planned thing versus Peter kind of being forced into to his transition. Is that correct? Um, it was planned in as much as I had the ability to plan anything. I'm quite rash and impetuous. Um, I came home one day and said to my husband, let's retire. He said, I need to do a spreadsheet. I need to work out. The <laughs> no, 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 let's just go. Let's go. Um, so it was kind of half planned and half uh, just impetuous, really. 
Um, but yes, I was only 50, seven, so younger than retirement age. Um, but, but a decision made in order that we could get out of London and just do what we wanted to do. We didn't know what that would be, but uh-huh. I knew I didn't work in London anymore. <laughs> Okay. And what kind of work did you do? Um, did that help you prepare you kind of for this next step in phase in your life? Or? Nothing has prepared me for meeting Peter. I do, I do. Um, I, so I worked with families where the young people were committing antisocial or criminal acts. So anything from drugs and uh, theft to murder. So I would try and I would work with the parents. Um, so as you can imagine, that was quite high pressured, high intensive job. Um, so I didn't have a vision of what life would be like when I left that behind. Uh, I just thought, let's see what happens. Let's just drift along and see see where it takes me. And that's been pretty much my approach all my life. I've never really planned anything. Okay. So how did you two meet then? Um, shall I take this one? You go with that one. So. We live. I live in a, a small town called Satsmundham, and Peter lives three miles up the road. And in my town, there's a bicycle shop. Uh, and I was desperate to talk. I, I moved here not knowing anybody, so I was going to talk to anybody I could to try and make a network. And I was talking to the lady in the shop, uh, and she mentioned Peter had just cycled from Aberystwyth, which is in Wales, back to Alborough, which is in our county, Suffolk. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she said, oh, but he has early onset dementia. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And I thought nothing more of it, really. And then I bumped into Peter and we we started to chat. And then we went our separate ways and I bumped into him probably five minutes later. And he had no recollection that we had had a chat, although he blagged it very well. (laughs) Um, And that's how we met, literally through standing in a bike shop. Okay. I must say... At this point, though, I don't know how we actually became friends, because <laughs> if she wasn't impressed with me cycling across Great Britain for 360-odd miles, then I don't know what was going to impress her, really. <laughs> <laughs> so what, um, Deb, what attracted you to, to cycling with Peter, then? Um, well, I, I hadn't been much of a cyclist beforehand. I was a runner, oh. and a and, and in London, although I had a bike, there are not that many places to cycle. But in Suffolk, there are loads of places. And I suppose Peter just said, well, let's go out on a bike ride. Because people up here are quite friendly, not like London. Um, and I started to ride a bike and then bought a better bike and became a cyclist. And because Peter knows the countryside and gave me little lessons about history up here and, and also reminisced about his own youth, it seemed to work quite well. And because I can't fix a bike or pump up a tyre or put a chain back on, and Peter could, it just was a, for me, it, was, it felt like I was being looked after. Mm. I think one of the things that the other key thing was at this point, my wife was, uh, Teresa, was working uh, a few days a week uh, in a local small uh, business. And I was, well, I was getting so it wasn't so easy for me to cycle on my own. So to find a cycling buddy um, sort of actually fitted in very well at that time. It, it gave my wife the reassurance that I was 
got somebody with me and I, I wasn't on my own. Because, <laughs> Until she realised that was me. Well, yeah, because <laughs> she was sort of panicked and that I was spending all day on my own and I was getting a little bit, I wouldn't say lost, but mislaid and I, I wasn't finding that very easy and she wasn't finding it very easy. So when she was at work, she wasn't sure how I was getting on, but to have somebody there made that somewhat easier. And then, because as time went on, uh, Teresa then, uh, stopped working with her job and of course ended up cycling with us but at that time for a, a year I suppose ish it, it just fitted in really well and um, uh, Debs and her husband and, and me and Teresa became really 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 good friends it's just somehow worked. Isn't that interesting I, I always find it fascinating how people meet and are drawn together and uh, that's just a very very um very interesting story how it just something so happenstance can take a hold and make a connection. It's also more interesting than that to a degree because Debs knows many things about me because obviously she's written the book and she knows about me because she can remember the stuff that I tell her. The thing is with Debs, I know very little about her because I can't remember what she's told me. So her background is, is not that easy for me to go and I know that she's a good friend and I know we get on all right, but her, the details are, are pretty much not there because I haven't known her that long to, to make that map in, in my mind. So, uh, so it's, 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 it's a very, very weird thing, I think, for people to try and understand. And I think it, it, it throws a different light on friendship, because friendship is usually more mutual. You know, I moan at you, you moan at me. Mm. We, we talk about what we've done. Mm. That doesn't really happen because you don't often remember what you've done. No. Um, and you don't, as you say, you don't remember much about me. You know the key things, you know, about Martin. Yes. You know, about a grandchild. Yes, yeah. But you don't really remember much else about me. You know, I've got no. a broken shoulder. Yeah, well, yeah. she goes on about it all the while. Um, <laughs> but, but it shows that friendship doesn't have to be how we imagine it. It can take a different form. Yes, it can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, how beautiful is that? Um, and I think that is just such an important thing for people to understand because we do, I think, get stuck in... In, in a certain standard of what we think uh, friendship or even conversation has to look like. And I, I know on my journey with my mom, you know, I, I learned, and we were always really close, but I learned to communicate in different ways. And I, I got so much out of it in it, even though as her disease progressed, I, I felt like we were connecting on a deeper level. Because, you know, I, I had to go deep to connect and, and that became my new norm. And it was like, wow, this, this is a much richer relationship than how's the weather, you know, or what's the, what's the, what's the, you know, score of the game. Um, it, it just became much more personal. And, uh, and that was one of the biggest lessons that I learned with that. Now, Peter, you are, you know, extremely passionate about living with dementia and, and doing that well. And um, you're just such a, a wonderful example to the world of, of how to maneuver through the good and the bad times and, and just kind of keep pushing through and, you know, working with what you have and enhancing others' lives in terms of just your, your personality alone and your... Um, 
wherewithal to to make a difference you know and your passion to do that it's uh it's very easy to to see and i think even more importantly feel when people talk to you and engage with you and i i to me that's one of the things missing in a lot of people's lives is a true passion you know to to make a difference and i think i think society as a whole if they say it or not really admires that um, and, and kind of makes them go home and go, hmm, I wish I had that, that little, you know, fire in me. I wish I had that, that something that, that sparked me. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things that I love about being in the world of dementia is there's so many brilliant sparks out there, raising awareness, really loving what they're doing, living every day you know, to their, their fullest ability. Now you have cycled, if I'm not mistaken, four different countries. Is that correct? Counties. Uh, well, it was actually five different oh, counties, counties. Yeah. Of, of Great Britain. Um, so I, I first, I, I suppose after I was depressed, I came to realize that um, I wanted to help other people and um, show people that, you know, life was different with dementia, but not over. Cycling was something that has always been a great passion for me. Uh, what cycling did is it, it, it somehow, you see, dementia is, is, is a bit of a nasty, sticky, smelly bog, and cycling somehow created a solid path through that bog. So that's what I used as as, as a way of, of of getting away from my dementia monster and um so um i cycled across the country as as i probably said and then i decided that another year i would do another challenge so and i had this idea that i would try and do a challenge every year while i could now i'm i'm nobody special i'm i'm no i'm no professional i'm, I'm not a doctor i'm just a guy living with a condition so I say to people now, if I can do things, so can you. Um, you can run, walk, swim, jog, do whatever you want to do. Cycling is my thing. And whatever is your thing, take it and create that path through your own dementia bog. So that's what I did. And, and I decided to cycle five counties of Great Britain. And um, I can't, I think it was Suffolk, Suffolk, Norfolk, Cambridge, Cambridge Lincolnshire, Norfolk. And we popped by mistake into Essex, which is another county. And again, it was, it was to raise awareness and raise valuable funds for um, dementia charities. And I did it on a penny farthing because, um, or as you guys might call there, a high wheel. Um, and, uh, I did it on that because I want to do something different. I'm always thinking, well, a guy rode a bicycle across the country. Let's have a guy riding a different type of bicycle. And um, so, so that is, uh, that's one of the, um, the, the challenges that I did. And the other day, because we had COVID, that sort of knocked things on the head a little bit. But just recently, we, um, we travelled to London and cycled back from London in a day. Uh, my wife, me, Debs, and her brother-in-law, Andrew, who, um, who got us over London. So that was a hundred and something miles. So that was another challenge, challenge my dimension. But that was a different challenge again, because you used a bike without any gears. And that's right. Oh, yes. I used a, a bike with no gears, a single speed bike. So, 
you can't change gear. You're fixed in one gear. And of course, again, that makes it harder. I constantly try to make things more difficult for myself to challenge me and to challenge my condition. Because what's a challenge if it's not challenging? That's, you know, so, and I think that it's, it's, it, we, we, we as a family and, and Debs, we try to give people a little bit of an inspiration. We try to ignite a flame in people so that, you know, they can go along and, and make it burn brighter themselves. And that's what, that's what we're doing. And we do it as, as well as many other people with my condition do. And uh, hopefully we can try and help people who are going through the same situation that we did. And instead of spending a year being depressed, maybe they might just spend a few months and it might even save some lives. That's what we're hoping. I agree with you. Now, you had mentioned you rode the, the penny farthing. That is something I don't see very often here in the U.S., at all. And yet I look at these pictures and, and you're like with a gang of people riding these things at times. Are there that many of them over there? Well, to give you some sort of um, background to it, it was a, one of the first bicycles that was invented as a design in 1875, I think it was. And uh, the design didn't last very long because this wonderful thing called the safety bicycle came out with wheels the same size instead of having a really big wheel at the front and a little wheel at the back hence the the penny which is the big wheel and the farthing which is the little wheel um they were a very crude design but as sometimes these things seem to come back into fashion and um there is uh, a group in this country called the league of ordinary riders because the penny farthing was named originally as the Ordinary Bicycle. And there's a group of us, and um, we're all quite mad, quite insane, <laughs> and we, we ride these, um, you know, these, these horrendous things about because they're different. They're, they're great fun, and they're a great talking point. And in actual fact, they look horrendously difficult to ride, but trust me, when you actually get used to them, they're not as not as bad as as, as you might think. But uh, yeah, so there, so um, yeah, we just there seems to be a, a renewed interest in in this country, and um, I think you do have them in America. I think there is there is a group in America as well that uh, that do it, but. I think you term them different. I believe you call them the high wheel bicycle, I believe. In oh, okay. See, I, I have not seen them. The only time I remember seeing them was at a circus when I was a kid. <laughs> you know? We have one here that we, we, we're going to put up on the wall. Look, I don't know if you're. If you oh, fun. Big wheel and little wheel, you see. So okay, okay. We're going to stick it up on the wall behind us. So. <laughs> oh, very neat. Very neat. Well, yeah, I was just, I was wondering, you know, how many there really were, but there is a group because I just thought, again, like you said, what an attention getter. I mean, I could just see my grandchildren just being all giddy going, oh, you know, I, I want one of those, you know, type thing. And, and so, um, you know, kudos to you for all the miles you're putting in and the, and the funds you're raising and the awareness that you are that you are bringing, you know, to all of this. I, I want to get in and talk about the book itself. Whose idea was that to, to write? Yep. Slow puncture. I love that title too. I, I think that's just a wonderful, wonderful title. 
But Peter, was that your idea or Deb, was that yours? Well, I think it's it was one of those things where um, when we started cycling together, I was, I think, saying things and I was obviously forgetting the stuff that I had said and Deb started to record it um, because she really does like writing. And it never started off as intended, not from what I can recall, to be a book, but it just sort of somehow just somehow turned into one and, and you could take over. I think it was because during that one year you did so many things uh, and it, so the book is more like um, a year in the life of and it felt like that would be a good book as opposed to just a biography of Peter. Um, but it because knowing Peter gave me an insight into dementia, it was also meant to be a book about how I my understanding has grown. So... As Peter said, it was never meant to be a book, but it, it quickly became obvious that was a thing to do. And my only real ambition in life, apart from to be happy and healthy and have happy, healthy children and all, all those <laughs> things, was to be a writer. And meeting Peter kind of fulfilled that one proper ambition I ever had. So, it were, again, it worked on so many different levels. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, interesting. I, you know, I, I do think there's just a big plan that, uh, you know, up above that just connects us to the right people. If we just look back at that, it's like, what are the odds of you meeting somebody in a cycling shop and writing a book on them and becoming great friends and, you know, just, uh, just amazing. Um, Deb, what have you learned in writing the book and in being good friends with Peter in terms of dementia itself in terms of your view of it I think the view I had which as I said was kind of based on my elderly grandmother is totally gone out the window I I suppose like many other people have a stereotypical view of dementia which is people gibbering and running around and Mm. and you know not being able to do but my view now is that (sighs) quite the opposite but not only have I learned about dementia and I understand what Peter can do really well and what he struggles to do a bit better I've learned to understand my own life and my own attitude so Peter who is constantly positive kind of puts in perspective some of my little niggles about life because and I think the one example I use in the book is when I did break my shoulder and it was kind of oh woe is me look at my shoulder and I was showing everybody my shoulder and mm-hmm. you know wanting the sympathy knowing it was going to get better and you couldn't be more opposite than Peter wanting to hide dementia sometimes and prove that he you know to, to fool people into thinking he doesn't have dementia uh and and knowing you're not going to get better that you know it is progressive yeah. and that's yeah. quite it's quite hard to say that but but Peter's view on life has shaped my perspective on my life and also taught me so much about dementia not just his because I know Peter's dementia is Peter's dementia but now I've started reading about other people and chatting with other people and getting more involved in dementia circles, if there is. Is there such a thing as a dementia circle? Oh, I suppose there is. I mean, we could have a dementia square, if well, you like. I mean, okay. it's up to you. But... Dementia group. So, <laughs> so my understanding has grown and continues to grow. So I recently talked to Dr Jennifer Butte, who, who presents in a totally different way to Peter. I've chatted with Wendy Mitchell. Again, totally different. Everybody's dementia is different, mm. and I didn't know that. Mm. I just had this view of people... Yeah declining into madness like King Lear but it's not the case I think also it's it's I think very poignant to say that dementia can and does take a lot from 
us as individuals, but also it can also give us a lot as well in, in, in some ways. If you look in the right places, you can achieve things. And in some cases, people achieve more after a diagnosis than they ever did before because their lives have changed. And instead of thinking, well, you know what, I'll do that next month or in a couple of months' time, people think, no, I'm going to do it tomorrow. And you can live such a, a, a wonderful life because every day is, is, is something different. And you can actually, you know, in, instead of a cup being half full, it can be overbrimming with, with, with stuff. And I think that's, uh, that's something that I, I always try to put out that, uh, you know, it can take a lot, but also it can give as well if you, if you look in, in the right places. But your, your dementia has given shape to my retirement. Mm -hmm. As I said, I came up here not really with any great plan. And now my days are structured uh, and I'm doing, I'm doing so much. I'm, I'm actually ashamed to say I'm busier now than when I was working and getting paid for it. <laughs> Which hopefully my ex-boss won't hear that. Um, but, but Peter's dementia has given me things that I never thought I would achieve, like the writing, like a, a new understanding, like a new appreciation of life. And that all sounds a bit cheesy, but it, yeah. it is the case because I listen to what you say and you, you have changed the way I think. Mm -hmm. But I think also the other thing is it has given that. But then again, it, it takes away from, I suppose, friends and family in a, in a, in a, in a different way. So it's, it's a funny old thing, really, um, uh, because... Deb's is sort of a friend, but she's removed from it, whereas my wife is not removed from it. And I think a lot of people will relate to that, that husbands and wives, carers or whatever you want to call them, are somehow stuck with it. And I can sit here and say all these things, but there's another flip of the coin that, um, you know, people who are actually in this bubble with you or on this journey with you can always see it in a, in, in a, in a different light. And um, that's another flip side. Dementia is a funny old thing. Dementia has many hats and it wears them all very, very well. If, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things too, that, that uh, was, a, it was a real profound statement by somebody with dementia and, and to me, it, it changed how I looked at it. And, you know, I try to repeat it because I think it's important because I think people think of a phase and it's like, okay, this is, this is what it's going to look like. You know, you're in this phase of the disease. And, you know, they said, you know, think of dementia and in, in the symptoms like emotions. You don't wake up and stick with one emotion throughout your day. You know, someone's, you're going to get a spam call. Someone's going to cut you off on the road. Someone's going to be really kind. I mean, all of these little things can happen that are going to affect you during the day. And so um, many of them have said like they, they go through all the symptoms, you know, even um, depending on what scale you're using, if it's one through three, one through four, the one, one through seven, they said they go through all of it all day long, but they, a lot of times they don't tell their care partners because they don't want their care partners to think, okay, you know, I'm at the lowest level because I know I'm coming back up. You know, I just, I went through this phase, like an emotion. 
And and I thought, well, that was really a brilliant way because I think most of us can understand that flow of emotion and that you don't always know when when those symptoms are going to change, you know, um, and, and I think that that is um, confusing for a lot of people. Well, he did it yesterday. Why can't he do it today? Or he couldn't do it yesterday. And wow, look at him today, <laughs> you know, um, but that's just kind of the disease. Is that correct? Is that what you're yeah. sensing? I, to sum it up, really, in my terms, dementia is a moving target and it's very difficult to hit the bullseye every time. You might hit the outside, you might hit the middle, you might miss the target altogether. So you can't really um, put any sort of, I suppose, any sort of rule to it. It it is just a swinging target and everybody's trying to hit it and not everybody is is, is getting the same the same shot with the arrow every time. Mm-hmm. So in your book, um, how did you, I, I'm going to um, give this one to Deb. How did you format it in terms of, you know, chapters? And is it something somebody has to read from beginning to end or can they do it in chunks? Um, I think it would make more sense from the beginning to the end because one of the threads running through it is my increased understanding. So if you start in the middle, that would then not make any sense. Um, yeah. It's in different sections. It's in Peter's voice, which obviously I wrote, but it's your voice and it's my voice. So the activities that Peter does can be looked at in any order. But the way he describes his life, I think, needs to be from the beginning to the end. It's not a long book. So I guess the short answer is beginning to end. OK, OK. People can access the book. How? It is available on Amazon. Um The publishers are the Book Guild, but that's in the UK, so I don't think that's helpful for America. Peter's got a website. And then you both have Facebook pages as well. Deb, yours is Deb Bunt, author, and Peter's is Peter-Barry-Living-With-Alzheimer's. Yeah, it had much to do with the the face. This is one thing that has has changed over a period of time. I used to do all of that uh, myself or a majority of it, but now um, my wife and Deb's run that all for me. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's great to have that, have that platform, but I, I, I wish that I could do it myself, but then I can't. So it's, it's also fair to say that I do all of these wonderful things, but there are people in the background who set all these things up. Um, I come up with these weird and wonderful ideas and say, wow, I wonder if we can do this. And then uh, Teresa and Debs run away and, and and sort it all out for me and then panic like mad after, I, <laughs> after I've come up with ideas. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. And, and that's pretty typical, you know, with dementia. I, I've seen that with uh, so many uh, people living with dementia that are advocates, they start out. And they're able to do that. And then they build this team. But you also are building the team because it, you know, your audience has gotten so much bigger. And, you know, there's only so much one person can do as well. And so I, I, I love that people are coming in to support, um, to carry on the conversation and still raise, you know, awareness because Facebook is a wonderful 
connection for so many people. Well, again, I thank you both so much for being with us today. Fascinating conversation. I love seeing what you've accomplished, you know, since we last talked, Peter, it really is quite incredible. And Deb, you know, thank you for being his friend and and sidekick and and documenting this story because it's an important one. So thank you. That's great. Thank you. Thank you very much. And we've got, I've got lots of big ideas for the future. So uh, let's hope that uh, one day in the future, we'll be back on again um, uh, and, and sharing more of our experiences with you. Oh, I would love that. You know, you're always welcome. Turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525.